0: Welcome to Hollywood Ungagged, the Terry Funk of political podcasts. Season 6, season 6 it seems, how many seasons is that? Episode 2, I'm your host David McClemon, broadcasting from the Blantyre Free State and joining me this evening is journalist, activist, Republican socialist and World Cup winning goalkeeper, It's Connor Beaton. <laughs> Hi David. And introducing the third member of the Sydney triumvirate, the other VW, Ungagged's warrior poet, Sky's Mammy, it's Val Waldron.
1: Hello. Welcome, Val. Hi. Thank you.
0: How's everybody getting on?
1: Yeah, we're doing fine. Heading towards autumn quite quickly. We're sitting here with the fire on, but. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I I'm got... sad to see summer go because I feel like I blinked and missed it.
1: Oh.
0: Well, I get my missing cat back. And... Oh. I know. Good. I know you love cats, Val. Connor, you're I... a cat person as well, aren't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So he's been, he was missing for like six weeks and then he just appeared one night. And then the next day, my daughter left the front door open and he made a dash for it again. But I managed to track him down. And it turns out he's getting fed with a wee man up the road that was feeding my last cat that ended up vanishing. So he was coming up and he was being off friendly, the cat, not the wee man. Cat was being all friendly, but he doesn't like getting picked up. So every time I was trying to get him, he was just, like, skipping away from me. And I managed to get him into the cat carrier, but I've got some war, wound, <laughs> war wounds for, for my suffering. So he's back home. Oh, well, and
1: he quite
2: quite
1: Oh, well, I've got an unusual one by. one here that if you just invite him to get into his cat carrier, he just goes, weirdo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> see,
0: see, mine's convinced if he's going to the cat carrier, he's going to the vet. So. Oh, yeah. Doesn't like that at all. Do you, your cats get to go outside? I take it then, David. See, this is another story. I have been cat proofing my garden since like just before lockdown. So, which, um, considering that I'm still cat proofing it, it's not exactly high levels of success. But at the moment, it can keep two out of the three of them in. But one of them seems to be a Houdini yeah. and he keeps finding a way out. Honestly, some some of the stories about these cats, I would not believe them. If somebody told me, yesterday I was out trying to fix about the cat proofing because when they get out, you start looking at things like, mm, maybe they could get out that. I'll yeah. I'll fix that. Make sure they can't get out there. Mm-hmm. So as I was like trying to fix this like unlikely escape route. Let's say there's the three cats. One of them's a Houdini. The other one will escape if he sees the opportunity. And then there's wee Spike, who's a good boy, and doesn't to try to escape at all. So I'm standing there, and then I hear Spike, like, sitting meowing at me. And I look down, and part of the netting that keeps them in, Spike is standing his head through the net, showing me that there's a hole.
1: Oh. And I
0: swear to God, he wasn't trying to escape, because as soon as I moved, they came back in. He was grassing up his brothers and telling me where their escape
2: route was. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <be> so. <laughs> oh, couple of, hope you don't reward him for being a grass couple of cable
0: ties and that escape route's now <laughs> closed off so we'll see
1: well I have same problems trying to keep him out the front garden so because he's got 24-7 access to a safe back garden but of course the one who go out the front don't they they like to play with the traffic <laughs> so anyway that's cats
0: you get any good cat stories Connor?
2: I wish I had a cat but unfortunately so my partner she's a dog person and I'm a cat person and I've tried to propose to compromise that we should get one of each but she's not going for it so far and um, of course we're also living in a rented flat which makes it more difficult I've not had a cat since you know when I was a kid we always had cats when I was growing up and uh, yeah they, they sometimes ran out but never for more than like a couple of days I don't think it was maybe one time one of the cats maybe went missing for a week but not six weeks no. My- that all said, I still get in arguments online. i was saying I still get <laughs> I still get in arguments online, despite not owning a cat since I was a kid. Uh, especially if you go on TikTok, there's like Americans who really feel really strongly about you can't let cats outside, and mm-hmm. um, and they act as if this is you know every, just taken for granted. And I think there is a thing here where, like, I think in America, it's very unusual to let your cats out. Whereas here, you know, I would say it's maybe 50-50. People are okay with it. When we, I, we lived in Fife in the middle of nowhere. So, of course, it was fine for our cat to go out. Um, You know, it wasn't very dangerous there. But well, it's the, uh, thing, the thing in
0: America is, they, a lot of places in America, they have, like, predators. Yeah. But if you let your cat out, mm. there's a good chance someone will eat it. So,
1: yeah, it's, it's a different bear. environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's just so weird because I'm just like, yeah, okay, well, maybe that's the case where you live, but it's not, it's, you, America's not the whole world, so you've got to, because you just see this where yeah, there's a cute video of a cat outside, you know, and then all the comments are, you're a horrible person for letting your cat outside,
0: what's going yeah, on? But at the same time, Americans will, uh, you know, argue that it's a perfectly fine to their cats, you know, yeah. which is oh, like yeah. horrific, but yeah, they think know. that's fine.
1: Yep, that's nasty. Yeah.
0: Anyway, this isn't a cat podcast, despite what I may have turned it into here. <laughs> um, I think we should just get started then our the first topic, but first, let's okay. get on Okay, the first topic, it's not a very nice one. Um... Lucy Letby will spend the rest of her life in prison after being given a a whole life's order for the murder of seven babies and the attempted murder of six others at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Northern England. This horrific case has brought comment from several politicians, with Keir Starmer claiming the law should be changed to force defendants to attend sentencing, Tory MPs have used it as an opportunity to call for the return of the death penalty, and Dame Jackie Bailey, has claimed that there are parallels between the Lethby case and management at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow, a comparison which has met with widespread condemnation. So just to kind of break it down the different things there, I'll take the first topic about, and I wasn't even aware of this, I just assumed defendants would routinely go to sentencing, but seemingly it's optional, Um,
2: Connor, do you think it should be made compulsory? I think the first thing we'd have to talk about is how what does that actually mean to make it compulsory? How are you making it compulsory? Because unless you're talking about you know armed guards will grab you by the arms and frog march you in there and hold on to you, um, what the, the Labour Party said uh last year, which they've cited now in relation to the Lucy Leppe case, they proposed that it should be taken into account in the sentencing. So basically, if you refuse to show up for your sentencing, you might get an extra 10% extension to like your prison sentence which you know the fact that they've been crowing about this in uh, the aftermath of the lucy letby case it's like well she's got a whole life sentence what are you proposing to do you're saying you know she'll have to serve her sentence in the afterlife as well if she doesn't show up for sentencing whole uh, life yeah, I, I just think this <laughs> yeah i just i just think this is kind of like a, it's a populist thing it's not actually thought through it's just it gets to something emotive that people care about which is they want to see i think for a purely voyeuristic reason they want to see someone in the dock who they hate you know as as you would obviously hate someone who's done something horrible like this but i think it's just it doesn't serve the ends of justice it doesn't make a difference to um whether people are going to commit crimes or not it's just this kind of weird retributive thing and i think it also it comes it's in tandem with a couple of things like how sentencing hearings can now be live streamed i think maybe not all of them but uh, in england wales certain ones can be um which to the extent, i just feel is unnecessary because it's it's part of i think like an americanization not to blame all my woes <laughs> on america but like an americanization of the criminal justice process where you expect to be able to turn on the television and see inside the courtroom and look at the horrible defendant and so on and it's you know it's entirely a voyeuristic kind of retributive thing and I just I I think it's a silly thing to focus on in the aftermath of this well
1: yeah, I, I, I agree totally. Populist. Um, it was it was coming. Of course, the whole death penalty thing was going to follow. Um, but I think the cynical use of the family's grief as well. I mean, the family have enough to deal with without being pushed forward. As you know, you're depriving these poor, poor families of their, you know, retribution or whatever. Um, to me, all I'm seeing, I'm seeing. Um, the media, right-wing commentators, been deprived of the ability to say sh- she showed no emotion, because you can kind of imagine that, you know, the monster showed no emotion. Um, so yeah, and I sort of think I kept thinking, well, public um, punishment has always been a spectacle, hasn't it? You know, whether it's been the uh, what do you call it, the gallows or whatever. Um, throwing eggs and tomatoes at people—it's—it's it's, we're, we're really really going backwards, you know. It doesn't get more populist than that. So yeah, pretty worrying stuff. And you know, you know, as Connor says, how are you going to make somebody appear an adult? How are you going to do that apart from with force? So it's all very violent, very difficult stuff indeed. yeah
2: also if it's going to be if it's going to be violent if they're going to force you into the dock violently then what happens if you resist and they might have to get the police in and arrest you you know the sentencing there is a timetable that these things have to be made to if you're going to just factor in you know we're going to spend half an hour or longer trying to force someone into the dock and now the case is delayed and the next one's delayed it's not going to help with the fact there's this enormous post-covid criminal justice backlog and that you that there's people being failed now because it's going to take years for their cases to come forward. That's actually failing both like victims and defendants. Um, yeah. So to just tack on some other thing that's going to make the administration of court business a complete mess is just yeah, it's just silly. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it just seems unworkable. You know, you say the point about sort of increasing the sentence if they don't go. But the thing I was reading and and, and somebody made the comment like, well, what what do you do if they're there and you know they 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 try to be disruptive because they don't want to be there. Or, um and somebody replied in a comment section, "Oh well, well they'll be removed if they do that." And you're like, well, that's the whole point. Like. Yeah. So make them go, but if they show any displeasure about being there, you'll take them out and give them what they were written on in the first place. I mean, it just shows us. I kind of I do like a logic, and you know, it's just again, just populist sort of things trotted out for the sake mm-hmm. of headlines that probably have no intention of being pursued as a concrete proposal. And if they did, they would soon run into, you know, unworkable um, logistics. Um, yep. yeah, the the death penalty calls are pretty predictable. Um, What's your views on the death penalty? I don't imagine. I'll be totally shocked. But... Uh,
1: no, you can kind of imagine that they uh against um, but not totally predictable as you say I could imagine I'm sure it's the usual suspects I think certainly on Twitter I've got most of them blocked but I can kind of imagine
0: oh, no, you in favour of the death penalty, penalty.
2: Yeah, yeah, I am also against the death penalty that has to be said these days you can never be sure
0: yeah I mean it's one of the things that it, some of my politics I realise I trace back to Star Trek and it's the death penalty is one of the things that I find I like, get quite kind of moralistic about and sort of um you know judgmental as a society. You know, we should be better than that and overcoming the quite understandable sort of base um emotion, especially around a case as terrific as this. You know, who's got any sympathy for that woman and But we need to be better than that as a society, even when yeah. as individuals we don't feel like that, you know. I think individually, you know. I certainly wouldn't feel much if that woman gets sentenced to death, but what would that say about the rest of us collectively? Um...
1: Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes we forget the the sentence in itself is the punishment and uh, people do not, you know, you've lost your freedom. People don't like the fact that the woman's probably going to have some kind of basic comforts or whatever. I, sometimes I just think, you know, we'll not stop wanting... Um, vengeance or whatever until they're in solitary confinement or whatever. So you know we're going down a very slippery slope. I don't even think, I, I think it's this... yeah, I don't even think it's knee jerk. I just think it's totally cynical opportunism, same as Bailey's comments as well. It's just opportunism really. I do worry I in the, the sort
0: whole... of I was just going to say, I do worry a wee bit in the kind of post-Brexit world that there will be people in the kind of right that will see maybe this as an opportunity. We've had discussions about wanting the um, the, uh, Tories trying to take us out of the European Court of Human Rights. Yeah. And the death penalty is one of the things that, you know, they they might be able to open up that front in the culture war. And it's certainly something in a casual sense as kind of popular, unfortunately. Sorry, Connor, what were you saying?
2: No, I think you're you're right to say that, David. And um, it's so interesting as well. See that if you look at polling, there's still a huge amount of popular support for the death penalty in Britain. It's, it's of course it's that older generation, the people who still read the right wing tabloids, who get whipped up into it. But it's happening at the same time that you know, even places like the US are thankfully moving away from the death penalty. Um, so the idea of this coming back in the UK, I think, is just a great illustration of how far the UK has gone down this kind of authoritarian rabbit hole in just the last few years. Um, But yeah, I think that there's a wider issue with how we see the criminal justice system altogether, which is that people do want this thing of, you know, it exists to extract the maximum amount of punishment and pain from people that we consider to deserve it. And the fact is that like the vast majority of people in the criminal justice system who get sentenced for various things are not evil people. And there's all kinds of reasons why people end up committing crime which has genuinely harmed people um but i think we need to really rethink that the way that we what we think the courts should be doing and whether we think prisons you know if we just want to keep growing and growing this prison population and have this as the solution to crime in the community there's a really good um podcast i'd recommend which um queen's university belfast have a law podcast called law pod and they had on Professor Phil Scratton, who is a criminal criminologist who did a lot of really important work on the Hillsborough um, campaign. And he talks a little bit about the ideas of prison abolition and restorative justice and a few other things like this. And it's a really good lesson because he makes some really important points about like, for example, think about um, men who commit uh, you know, misogynistic or homophobic crimes who then go into a prison environment, which is also male and extremely violent and think that after five ten years of this experience they're going to come out and they're going to be a more reasonable and more a better person effectively more able to play this role in society it's just completely back to front that's actually probably not going to help um and so yeah i think that's the thing is we need to try and encourage people not to go in for this knee-jerk thing of like i want to see this person punished as much as possible and trying to think about what we actually want as the outcome for society
1: yeah, I also think. I mean, who among us, let's be honest, would not have the thought she will have a difficult time in prison? Um, and who, you know, because people like babies for goodness' sake, you know. Um, so she is going to have a difficult time in prison. and It is difficult to feel sympathy, even though she's a, a pathetic character, and I, and I mean that in the, you know, most sincere terms. Um, so yeah, that you know, she's she's having her punishment. She she knows what punishment is. It should be
0: enough. Yeah, so Jackie Bailey also commented and sort of felt that there was parallels between the, the Letby case and management of the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. What was your thoughts on that, Val? Well.
1: well, she would, wouldn't she? I mean, again, just opportunism, entitlement um, is just... A, and basically opportunism. I don't think she's I t- I don't think it was a mistake. Again, I don't think knee jerk comes into it, and I think that pretty much covers everything that Jackie Bailey is and does. It's all about entitlement, really. Um, she didn't. She made a pretty poor show of. She didn't get rid of the, the tweet. She made a fairly poor show of following up with something that tried to explain it. But to me, it looked like. Well, keep digging. Um, I think the most notable thing was that you know she just got away with it. It was never mentioned, as far as I'm aware, anyway. I don't know if it was ever sort of brought up or anything, but I thought it was just absolutely shameful, absolutely shameful. And that doesn't take away from the fact that um, oh, certainly some of the administrators or the, the management of the hotel, you know, where Lucy let but let be worked, really do have to be accountable. But that's a whole different thing. And it's not the first time that Jackie Bailey has just thrown the whole of the NHS staff in Scotland under the bus, she It's a wee bit oh. like... Sorry, I
2: thought you were going to... say it's a
1: wee bit like ferries, you know, just throw in that word and woo, watch it explode, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: I have to yeah, qualify my opinion by saying I'm not really familiar with the scandal at the hospital. It's, it's an infections scandal, is that right? Someone can, yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, like there, there is maybe like a kernel of a point to be made about, you know, this the story of how hospital management mishandled Lucy Letby case, which is a really appalling story, and I'm sure that there are, you know, uh, there's lessons to be learned from that that could be applied in the Scottish NHS. But to think that it's, you know, a good idea to go and make this kind of stretched comparison between two. Scandals that really need to be taken seriously in their own right, and then splash it into, you know, the news media. I just think it's completely wrong, and that's it, undermining. It, it's this thing we have talked about before about, um, you know, it's disgraceful to use the f- victims' families in this way as a like a, as a political attack. But it's even worse to, you know, she, she's doing it to like two separate groups of of families. She's doing it to the families who've been affected by the scandal uh, in Scotland and the families who've been affected by um, Lucy Letby in England. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just don't see how it serves anyone. That's all I feel about it. But that's all I can say because, I, as I said, I don't really know enough about the scandal.
0: I mean, you know, it, it's like the timing as well. Like, if this was like, as a, as a bit of time had passed and you'd, you could make that point point, say, you know, look at the absolute worst that can happen when there isn't proper monitoring and um management processes in place but the fact that she brings it up just because this is in the news because she's been sentenced it's just like it's just very crass and yeah. just it's just point scoring um and again trying to use the most vile example of to just score some you know political points against the Scottish Government um it, it reminds me a bit when people go straight to like holocaust comparisons when they're talking about sometimes the most minor inconvenience you know like you know anti, um, anti-maskers so it's like oh i need to put a mask on to go in this shop so that is like being treated like a during the holocaust and and it's that kind of extreme jump it's like there's issues at this hospital Um, i think there's an investigation going on going to find out the exact details so jumping to compare it to, you know, a child murderer, a serial killer, you know, it's just, it's, it's a ludicrous comparison and and she has largely escaped criticism what I can see. Uh, all the people that I've saw criticise her are sort of people who are not in the same side mm-hmm. in Jackie Bailey. Anybody that's associated with her has just kept her head down and hoped it will pass. They've taken no responsibility and the fact that she's not even had to apologise, never mind resign, Um mm-hmm. You know, I think if an SNP or Scottish Government Minister made this comment, the media would be going into overdrive. I think it would be the front first item in every news agenda at the moment. But Scottish Labour just gets such a buy with the Scottish press.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've definitely had my head in the sand. I think sometimes it's good for you to have your head in the sand just take some time out from politics, otherwise it would drive you crazy. But um, I sort of deliberately listened to BBC Radio Scotland on Saturday morning just to see, to see if anything was said. And then I kind of remembered, well... That is actually about the one day when they actually do proper reporting. They could do international news and stuff. It's like, you know, it's not a a time where the masses are listening on their way to work or whatever. So, of course, she got away with it. That was it, gone. I'm not saying she planned it for that day, but um, certainly our friends in Radio Scotland were uh, in no obligation to mention anything. So, yeah, it's gone. She's got away with it.
0: any closing thoughts
2: on that? No, I think that's about all I can muster on that. But I mean, I'll just say the one thing, you know, Jackie Bailey's been an MSP, I think, as long as there's been a Scottish Parliament in 1999. And the fact, as you say, that she can just say things like this and get you know, pelters and then not go anywhere. It does, I think, reflect a general thing, which is that the quality of Scottish Labour MSPs is not very good. The quality of the front bench isn't very good. And as you say, they get an easy ride of it because, you know, there isn't actually a very serious Scottish press in general. And uh, yeah, Scottish politics still gets treated as this kind of second second rate scene compared to the UK level. So we just get, uh, you know, Labour rising in the polls has as much to do with, the Westminster political jostling and its reporting in Scotland, much more so than it has anything to do with what Scottish Labour looks like right now.
1: Yeah, I would say that's that's how it rolls for Labour. Um, they don't have an awful lot, but they certainly thrive on the misfortune of others. So mm. interesting times.
0: Uh, and now on next topic. Scottish Green's co-leader, Patrick Harvey has warned of a rise in homophobia after being verbally abused at the launch of the Green, Rutherland and Hamilton West by-election campaign. The MSP called a passerby a bigot after he was branded a deviant during an interview with BBC News. A Scottish Green spokesman has confirmed that they have reported the incident to police who are investigating. Val.
1: Yeah, it's been going on a while, hasn't it? Um, Abuse against Patrick Harvey. uh, Abuse of the Greens. Again, I'm afraid it comes back to that word populist again, this kind of populist trend against the Greens in general. Um, They are the most woke, imagine um, them. quotation marks around the word, word, uh, you know, they stand for all these terrible things that, you know, they're sort of um, pro-gender reform, they're pro-climate change, etc. And then in Scotland, of course, they're a big threat to keeping the SNP afloat and um, not to... Um, be making a, a deal about this but I just re- recently wrote for Ungagged a bit about um, just the sabotage of our own movement by those who would purport to be independent supporters who seem to want to trash the SNP. So there's, I think there's a lot of that as well but I suppose one of the other things that struck me I, I mean we seem to, these things seem to go in steps and like around the leadership contest time Another step was taken towards open racism against Tom Zayyusuf. And now people can just kind of go around shouting what they like, people that quite possibly wouldn't have before. And I think what frightens me a bit is that I suppose it's a kind of fascism that's missing a leader. God help us if these people get get seriously organised up here. Um, I hope that's not too over the top, but it, it doesn't feel good. Um, but yeah, it's not. Uh, I'm glad he he went to. I'm glad they reported it to the police. And of course, the uh, accusations now are you know what a snowflake and what happened to freedom of speech, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, none of this has stopped uh, the likes of Joanna Cherry and the right wing unionist media of all people counterattacking hit attacking him as ageist. Um, because he said that something along the lines of Fergus Ewing was out of step, essentially saying that you know he was too old to understand about you know the whole thing about the Greens and the SNP working together. So uh, poor guy, can he do right for doing wrong? It's it's a shame and a worry, but you know in a sort of bigger way and in a, in a personal way as well. So not good. But I'm glad they reported it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a rising uh, issue of street harassment, anti-LGBT street harassment, probably also misogynistic street harassment. There does seem to be this environment where people feel a sense of impunity. And you can look at this in, in raw data terms. If you look at the number of hate crimes that are reported to police, they are on the up. Um, especially if you look at a multi-year level and it was I think this year or last year that the UN's special rapporteur on anti-LGBT violence made a point of saying in the UK, or in Britain rather, it is an alarming um, trend and I think we can locate this as part of that and I think there's probably been a trend as well of like, you know, politicians getting it um, because they are these high profile targets so it is very easy for someone walking in the street to recognise Patrick Harvey and make a comment. Um, I think it's right, the police are investigating it. I think what's really appalling is the fact that the response from, um, you know, transphobic organisations and campaign groups has been to deny that there's anything homophobic about yelling deviant in the street mm-hmm. at a prominent um, LGBT politician, uh, which I think is just ridiculous. And I've seen the point even where For women Scotland, which is one of the more Um, prolific and really unpleasant organizations put on uh, Twitter, they took a screenshot that Patrick Harvey years ago had a Twitter exchange with Duncan Hothersall, who's of course a gay Labour member and activist, um, in which Patrick jokingly called him a deviant. Um, As if there's no difference between these two contexts. Uh, It's, you know, like mainstream transphobia is basically adopting uh, a, a variation on Oh well, if black people get to see the, say the N word, why don't I? And treat this like it's serious politics, which is just—it's. I mean, it's laughable, but it's also, you know, again, it's indicative of where things have been heading in the last few years. Um, I'm, uh, I was at Dundee Pride this year with uh, a lot of people, friends and comrades. We had a really nice. Um, intervention doing actually a, a radical independence block on the Dundee Pride Parade, uh, which was great. But I was walking around with one of my friends afterwards who was trans, and we got uh, a little bit of street harassment as well um from a guy who was shouting at us about like when is it going to be straight pride, and, uh, which is again you know one of these right wing talking points that you see wheeled out. um But we kind of the good thing was we kind of got to laugh it off because we were standing next to the Weatherspoons and their outdoor section was, you know, full of people and every other person there had like a pride flag of some kind like wrapped around their neck or like next to them because they'd all been at Dundee Pride, which was huge with thousands of people. And so there was the two of us in the street, there was this one roaster and there was all these people there and we were like, what do you hope to achieve here? Like you're so outnumbered that there's nothing you can say that really makes you feel diminished or uh, threatened or anything by it. It just becomes kind of farcical. And I think that to me is like the most important thing is, yeah, it's really bad this happened to Patrick Harvey, but the most positive thing we can bring out of it is trying to show solidarity and condemnation. And it does make a difference because these things, these little isolated incidents, they're most effective at doing what they're trying to do, which is to shut people up and to make them feel ashamed. They're most effective at doing that when you don't know that there's all these people you can rely on to um, to back you up. So that's the most important thing. And if we've seen like the turnout at Prides this year in Scotland has been probably the biggest ever and um, there's certainly some of the biggest demonstrations of any kind that are happening in Scotland so I think yeah that's that's the thing take take heart in that rather than taking and um, disappointment in what's happening randomly
1: now, the, the other thing is, I mean, talking about Pride, is I didn't go to it this year, I did last year, but I noticed uh, I walked into town kind of just after it, and, you know, I'm same as in Dundee, lots and lots of people walking around with their colours and everything, but all the shops decked out and whatever, you know, apparently supportive, and it would make you, yes, okay, that's um, commute, consumerism, whatever, but, you know, they're taking their own kind of risk, but it must also... Make and I'm going to use the word bigots. It must make the bigots feel well. You know, you can boycott one place. Are you going to boycott them all? Oh, you're out on a limb, mate. You really are out on a limb, um, and yet they still insist that you know Patrick and others are deviants, or it's all about hiding behind the children, protecting the children. I, I think they're they're probably they're like cornered rats now that they're you know, just fighting back hard. Uh, yeah, it, a lot of it does look positive out
0: there. I mean, I, I've kind of been a bit worried about a lot of the reaction I've seen. I didn't see an awful lot of sort of solidarity from other politicians that you would normally expect. I know Hamza Yusuf mm. condemned it. Uh, I looked, I couldn't see anything for the likes of Douglas Ross. Um, I couldn't see anything from, um Anis Sarwar either. You know, maybe they released something, but None of the stories I read um seem to um quote anything from them. It's the comment sections I've seen that have been an absolute bin fire, and it's always good to remind yourself that you know social media isn't real life. But the amount of absolute nonsense, like somebody claiming, well, how can he possibly report it to the police when he called the guy a bigot? Yeah, you know, like what is is somehow calling somebody a bigot is the same as spouting bigotry. You know, it's absolute idiocy. Um. Other people claiming, oh, this is ridiculous. You can't, you can't even criticise a politician in public without the police getting called. And you're late. No, he wasn't. they were not like criticising a politician. They were hurling homophobic abuse. And a lot of people who either... And maybe there's a lot of people who genuinely doesn't get the multi-layered stuff we use in a word like deviant and how, you know, words like that and groomer have just been weaponized over the last few years. Um through the sort of anti-trans stuff, and it's really um, how much it gets stronger in the last few years. Um, There's a lot of people that clearly did know, but they just think they can get away with it. And it reminded me of a situation about maybe nearly 10 years ago when Hamza Yusuf get abused in the street, when he was was selling the big issue as part of like a kind of, it was some kind of big issue anniversaries where they had politicians selling the big issue and a guy sort of racially abused them. And again, it was very similar in terms of he get caught in camera. But I seem to remember there was like politicians across the um, spectrum rallied to condemn it. And I don't remember even in comment sections many people try to defend the, uh, the racist, but you know, the homophobe seems to. The reaction has been very different and I think that shows how the um, the environment has changed over the last decade and not for the better and you know I worry
2: that it could get worse. I will say I do think that you know Hamza Youssef does get pretty constant racist abuse and mm-hmm. Islamophobic abuse and I don't think all of that gets called out by the other politicians um like rival party politicians and in in particular there's this kind of thing where there is uh the the rival parties they do benefit in some way from the fact that you know uh, the most prominent asian man in scottish politics is you know a hate figure for them it's not it's not it's not that i think that they're you know making a uh A very cynical decision not to challenge this because they benefit from it but it's also something that's just left out of political discourse like sometimes it's not acknowledged when there's uh for example a news story about how someone's very unpopular there's no acknowledgement of the fact that sometimes this can also be because of bigotry in the in the the population and it's not just that uh, people are making a, a judgment on politicians exclusively on things to do with their personality or their policies. Like other things do come into it. And it seems weirdly unacknowledged and not acceptable to reflect on that. Um but yeah, I mean I think it's a good point. I've not really I didn't notice whether, you know, Anna Sarwar or Douglas Ross were um condemning the the abuse of Patrick Harvey. But some journalists surely should have been asking that question of them um, and I'm sort of, if they've not had an answer to that then that is again another reflection on the, the state of the Scottish press.
1: Yeah and um, also I mean I think there's sort of parallels there with the fact that um, we're still waiting to hear to get an answer from it is it Maggie Chapman and um, asking really where, you know, where Labour stand on the whole, or is it just where Anna Sauer stands on the whole GRR thing now? I mean, I just think it's almost like the jury is out. We're waiting to see what these people are actually going to do, what they've got to offer. Um, it's Um like They're just going along with it. The tide, really, waiting to see where the tide is, what the whole popular thing is, pop, popular mood it's going to be for gender reform now. So on the one hand, we've seen, is I believe, Germany has... Is it Germany that's just mm. passed a gender reform act? Um, you know, so just to me, they're going against the tide. But then again, if if Labour nationally are talking about a lifetime of Brexit, then you know who cares about the, the rest of Europe or whatever. So. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah I, I just think they're waiting to see what's, what's going to happen. We know that Anna Sarwa really pretty much let Nicola Sturgeon fall on her sword. I mean, we know that they voted for it, but she took the stick for it. So it's a pretty weak position, really. So to me, that ties in with it. They're just, they're just in waiting. They're waiting to see, again, I'm sorry, but opportunism and entitlement. They're waiting to see, you know, what, what's in it for them. Well,
2: Scottish Labourers always
0: get that very difficult job that if they take a a principled stand in something, you know, Keir Starmer's likely to completely contradict them and then leave them in the situation where they either have to go to war with their bosses, which they're never going to do, or how can they come up with some contrived reason to reconcile reconcile what um, the UK party are doing compared to what they've claimed their principled stand was. So they just end up trying not to make too many principled stands and always giving themselves uh sort of escape route. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's like the classic politician, but it's like a whole party apparatus um, where they can't really
2: take a stand or believe in anything because they need to wait to
0: be told what to believe.
2: Mm. I would even I'd qualify, uh, Val, you know, what you said about they're looking at what's going to be popular and they're just going to go with it. I don't even think it's about what's popular amongst the general people, uh, because it does seem like, as David says, this is coming from the top down, it starts with Keir Starmer yeah. equivocates and, you know, Sarwar steps in line. But what Sarwar's doing, uh, sorry, what is doing, I don't think he's trying to go for what he thinks is popular. What he's trying to do is ingratiate himself with like a certain kind of media yeah. and political class. They've got a lot of power in London he's trying to go with. What do the newspaper columnists and the newspaper editors think is the reasonable position that, you know, anyone who wants to be the prime minister must hold? And so they are all, you know, almost uniformly uh, on this super transphobic thing. It's becoming a a focal point for a certain kind of middle class journalist, well-educated, who really... They're overwhelmingly straight, they're overwhelmingly men. They don't really have any grasp of what it means to be a queer person in Britain now. And certainly don't think it should be the business of the, the Labour Party to think about improving those people's lives. Um, and that's where it all starts. You know, it's, it's just really, I don't know if you saw the thing recently about all the gifts that Starmer has received um, from private companies who are lobbying him because they're desperate to be in with the next Prime Minister. And it's you know he's received more in gifts i think than apparently any labor leader of the last or i think someone said it was more than corbyn and miliband put together um and i think again that's really indicative of what is he looking to when he's trying to decide what policy positions to take he's not looking at what people want he's looking at what do the newspaper editors and what do the big corporate donors want and that's um. it
1: yeah, pretty gross, actually, isn't it? Yeah, the idea of sending gifts—it's—it's—it its, it's, it's mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it was kind the of rubbish gifts thinking, as well. I was—I was thinking today about how i, I, I tweeted. It was—it's one of the ones you tweet, and you i was that proud of it, and it got like four likes. But um, you know, I feel as if you know this is going to be the what's likely to be the next the second time in my lifetime that there's been a um, Labour government elected after. You know a prolongatory rule, and it just feels like history repeating. Mm. You know, you know we've got this electoral system, first past the post, that really only lets two parties have uh, have a chance at power. And then even the system with a, you know, a, a media environment that will only elect one allow one of those two parties to get elected if they completely adopt the policies of the first party, and it's like with the joke to then like shout about democracy around the world and just just an absolute joke of a country the UK yeah and yeah,
1: everyone knows it that's
0: the thing yeah. just trying to figure out how we got here from the initial story <laughs> um, but I think we'll all just kind of finish up with saying solidarity with Patrick Harvey and mm-hmm. absolutely yeah.
1: yeah,
0: and now a word from our sponsor our sponsor this week is Sense
3: of Nature Pet Service, based in central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures. From snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles, Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one group sessions, educational count- encounters for children of all ages, and they are available for private events upon requiring. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do and if appropriate, a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Hollywood Unguide 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature, you can do so by email on sense.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature.
0: Uh, The next item on the agenda. The former Scottish Labour leader, Kezia Dugdale, has said her stance on independence has moved and she can no longer argue for staying in the UK with the same strength she did in the run-up to the 2014 referendum. Dugdale said she felt Scots would eventually get a second vote in the future of the country's place in the UK, but did not believe a referendum would take place within the next decade. I don't think either the Labour Party or the Conservative government will concede a referendum, the former politician said. Asked how she would vote if there was another ballot in Independence, she said she would decide at the time. While stressing that she was outside of party politics, she said, if, you, if you're presented with a binary choice between an independent Scotland and a progressive Europe and a little broader Brexit Britain, I know where my cards would fall down. Ronald,
2: is this good for the independence movement? Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, c- certainly I, I, I welcome any politician from the centre to the left who is willing to see the political direction that the UK is headed in and able to make a practical decision. Um, especially, you know, Kezia Rugdale is someone who has got every reason to hate the independence movement. You know, she's, uh, you know, been a hate figure. And if we think back to her defamation case with things Over Scotland, some of the abuse that she got from people who support independence was really appalling. And so it's a really thoughtful intervention for her to make coming from that background. Um, I don't think this obviously changes my general political assessment of her. I have no reason to believe that she's no longer a Blairite, for example. I look back at her leadership of the Scottish Labour Party and there was a lot to, you know, to want. But at the same time, I can't say that it's a bad thing to see politicians waking up to this. And I think if you look at the reasons that she's given that, you know, it speaks to the fact that in Scotland, kind of uniquely in Britain, we still have people who are pro-European in quite a fundamental way. Like it means a lot to their politics, which is something that seems to have vanished from the UK political stage in Westminster apart from I suppose the Lib Dems who are an irrelevance anyway um, but the fact that in Scotland people are making interventions on really big contentious issues like independence and having the reference point being um, the fact that they're pro-European politicians that, and that means a lot to them I think actually speaks to the unique political discourse that we're having in Scotland at the moment um, I think one of the things that has been really uh, notable after this and that's that you can take something out of as well, as the fact that the Labour Party have been so quick to, and like especially certain figures in the Labour Party have been so quick to try and discredit and completely throw under the bus someone who was their leader not that long ago, um, in the most kind of and arrogant and kind of entitled language, you know, so um, when I saw on Twitter was Stephen McCabe, who is the Labour leader of Inverclyde Council, who basically every time someone from a Labour background says something vaguely critical of the party now, he goes and says, like, oh, who's that? I don't care. Um, but he's done that to Kezia Dugdale. And it's just, you know, this this kind of treatment of heretics, you know, you, we must uh, chase them out, totally discredit them because we have to be this, you know, tightly, all in the same page force. It's what's going to bring the Labour Party down in Scotland. Uh, eventually because they're making such a big show like Sarwar did that thing recently where he said you know we're totally it's totally legitimate for people to wish for independence and we want those people to vote for him vote for him as well but what he can't say is you know I will stand for the right for Scotland to have a referendum because he doesn't because that's such a big part of Labour's pitch is that they are the the, the left unionists um for for Sarwar to say it's entitled, you're, you're perfectly entitled to want this, but we're not going to give it to you. Kind of just smacks of the general thing from the Labour Party, which is if you step out of line at all in the Constitution, if you step away from this, we must defend the union at all costs thing, then you cease to have any political utility for them. Um, this is the party that was deselecting council candidates based on their position, or or deselecting, or at least. Uh, disciplining council candidates for their position of independence in an election that has nothing to do with the constitution. Um, so, yeah, in in that context of where the Labour Party is, it's really refreshing and positive to see people kind of stepping away and criticising that, especially as someone who's as high profile a figure as Kezia as Dugdale. Well...
1: Yeah, I get many mixed feelings and emotions about this. Um, I say, first of all, I, I like Kezia. Uh, I remember her for her really heartfelt attack on Ruth Davidson over, I believe it was the bedroom tax. Really went for her. She cares about these damn things, you know. She, she has a conscience. I think it, she's been, she's saying, oh, I can say these things because I'm no longer in politics, but... You know, she's stepping out of herself to say these things. that is bothering her the way the Labour Party is going enough to say this. Um, What always has annoyed me, and I'll say this very clearly, I'm very aware that the SNP is not the independence movement, but it's always annoyed me, I suppose, that um, a lot of the independence movement, a lot of people have said, Oh, she'll be SNP yet. Uh, you know what about her father and her, her late father, and what about uh, her wife? Blah blah. She's going to. So doesn't got nothing to do with it. She's Labour. She's a Labour unionist, and that—that's who she is. But she does care about these things. On the other hand, um, I'm sort of thinking. You know, it made me think about just after a couple of days after the um, after Brexit was voted in. And I noticed. I remember, around that time, yes, briefly, in the polls, went up to about fifty-six percent. I don't know if you remember that. And people like, uh, and you know, and I'm not making this up, but like Margaret Curran, were actually on radio saying, "Oh, yes, I could consider independence." There was one or two others uh, as well. That, and you think, no, okay, they all slipped back very, very quickly. Um, So I kind of can see that a wee bit as well. She doesn't want, she's a unionist, that's that. Um, But, um, and it's also a wee bit never, never, never land, you know, um, you're not going to get a referendum sometime down the line and who knows. But I still think it's a good thing uh, that she has come out and she has considered it, the EU is a big deal. It's important, you know, it's hitting home with, you know, and this will help um, a lot of people who are swithering about voting Labour, it will help them to hit home that we are talking about a lifetime, as far as we, our lifetime of um, Brexit. Um, you know, that Scottish independence, whatever is going to happen, is possibly the last chance. So it is important. Uh, and although you wouldn't, I'm trying to stop the cat walking over the, the keyboard here. Um, although you, um, Yes, you've made me stop thinking, haven't you, Kat? Yeah, I, I, I actually think it's important. we need, there are people who just want uh, a referendum or they want independence now, but they seem to be forgetting that we need to bring other people on board. And we need to be, you know, and that sounds obvious, but I think a lot of people have forgotten that. It's not just about the referendum does not mean we get independence. It just means we get to vote on it. So uh, yet we do need people, obviously, who have, who support Labour or who have supported Labour in the past. So on the whole, I think it's a it's a good thing. It's opened up discussion. So
0: yeah, I've I've always kind of quite liked Kezia Dugdale. Um, I first remember seeing her; it was during the referendum campaign. She was in some kind of show, sort of taking the independent uh, the unionist side, arguing uh, opposite Elaine C. Smith. And as a politician arguing against a kind of non-politician celebrity you know, that's quite a difficult job, but she done really well with it, really being patronising, condescending or overly hostile or um, um, confrontational about it. And, and I kind of feel that it was the weakness of the Labour Party kind of ruined her career because it sort of dis- disintegrated around her to the point where she had to become leader because, you know, Jim Murphy had imploded, like, spectacularly in... You know, they were looking about and she seemed like the only viable candidate, even though she'd made it clear she didn't feel she was ready. And I often compare her to Nicola Sturgeon, who had almost a decade sort of learning the ropes and how to to do that job. Um, Whereas Tugtail just got thrown in and she was eaten alive and she was at the door before we really uh, knew what was happening. Um, I like that she's changing her mind. Like you said, Val, we need people to change their mind. Um, I, I do find it incredible that you still run into sort of purists that, you know, I voted for independence and anybody that didn't vote for it in 2014, but anyway, and it's like, well, well if if we keep that up, we will lose the next one as well. And you can hate the people that voted no in that re- referendum just as much. Um, I like that Kezia Dugdale didn't, you know, come right out and say she was in favour of independence. I like that she kind of tiptoed around it because hopefully if there is an independence referendum she can then state that she's going to vote for independence uh, and make more of an impact whereas now we know independence referendum on the horizon, if she did it would have made a splash and then by the time um, the referendum came round it, don't think it would have meant as much I was just going to say, do you think she's right about the timescale, That it's not likely in the next ten years
1: Oh gosh, it's almost ten years since the last one, and I think remember thinking at the time, oh my god, we can't wait ten years. But ten years goes, there's so much has happened, hasn't it? You know, she could be.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, my prediction was always in aftermath. I kept thinking it's going to be a rerun of the sort of devolution referendums, where with this kind of narrow defeat, and then twenty years later we won in a landslide because. For the 20 years, it was seen as a mistake that we should have done 20 years ago. So I kind of can imagine in another 10 years' time, you know, the demographic changes and whatever is happening in uh, the UK by that point, that I think we'll get to the point where we'll have a referendum and it will almost be a formality. I think it, will, it could be a kind of landslide um, vote.
2: I just don't really want to wait 10 years. No. Yeah, I think it's hard to predict, to be honest. The one constant in British politics of the last few years has been this kind of constant crisis. It's very hard to make predictions. I don't think it's a good, you know, uh, a good tactic to think, well, this is going to happen in so many years and we can count on that because it just doesn't. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen if, you know, Keir Starmer's Prime Minister and there is an increase in demand for independence. We don't know how he's going to respond to that. It's not something that I would like to rely on. Um, you know, it, it could be, for example, that there's a hung parliament next year and the SNP are in a position to negotiate um, with an incoming Labour government around something like a referendum in exchange for a, a confidence and supply agreement. And... Um, so I I and I try and keep a, an optimism in politics as well because I think it's too easy to become completely disenchanted and to give up if you just focus on the, the massive obstacles and the fact that you know technically the UK government could just deny referendum forever. I mean, there's nothing really that's going to stop them from doing that because international condemnation, it's not forthcoming, but it's not really going to make the make a difference. Um we've seen that the British courts aren't a route to democracy uh, with the UK Supreme Court case. And uh, what's really not been explored, uh, but what is really hard to imagine is like, are there tactics and strategies that the independence movement could take up that it could learn from other countries where, for example, mass civil disobedience has played a role. We've seen some really big and impressive um, demonstrations like marches and rallies for independence. But can we translate that into something along the likes of what the climate justice movement has explored, you know, the use of occupations, um, you know, uh, as there forms of civil disobedience that we've not explored or talked about at all that could be used? Um, there's really a lot of possibilities, but, you know, we're, it's, you can't just conjure these things in your head out of nowhere and want them to exist and think that that'll make them exist. You do have to um, work with what we've got. And at the moment, um, I think a big important thing for the independence movement is actually trying to uh, assert its independence from the SNP. Um, I think we're in a situation now where like, support for the SNP has declined and support for independence hasn't. And I think it's actually really important for those of us in the independence movement who are not in the SNP, like myself, for example, to say, um, you know, if you've gone off the SNP for some reason, you can still support independence. and we don't have to make this a party political thing i mean there's some people out there who probably are just turned off party politics altogether and i still want those people who support independence to feel like they can be part of the movement and be part of it um and i think that is a really crucial part to trying to keep the movement alive and on the offensive and i really would like us to have a referendum sooner than 10 years from now and <laughs> um, I would have liked to have had it already, maybe. I'm not saying that, you know, we're ready to fight the campaign. um, But having a deadline would certainly get people in shape pretty quickly. You know, maybe that's just me speaking as a journalist, that a deadline is necessary for me to (laughs) get my stuff in order. Um, And maybe just one final thing I wanted to say, um, just because we were talking about Kezia Dugdale and the fact that, you know, she is making this um, slight shift as david says she's not explicitly come out for independence she's kind of i feel like prepared to play that kind of henry mcleish role in a former in a future referendum <laughs> yeah. campaign where she could be like permanently on the fence yeah. um but uh but like yeah the, the fact is like her relationship with the european union has been a big part in her shifting we've just like in scotland since the referendum, and since the 2017 sorry since the twenty sixteen EU referendum, there has been this kind of linking between being pro EU and being pro-independence. And we're gonna see um very soon there's the I know that there's the march and rally for an independent Scotland in the European Union that's taking place in Edinburgh. And I believe the Scottish Government is on the verge of publishing a paper that is explicitly on EU membership. Um, and as someone who voted Remain and campaigned for Remain in twenty sixteen and is born in Germany and a family living in Europe, um I do think that we also have to take care to make sure that this doesn't become the only case for independence. I don't think we should be, I think there is a degree of liability as well. Obviously, we've got to have a debate about the European Union, and we've got to decide and we've got to make a position. But I'd be wary of heading into a referendum campaign, telling people for whom they maybe don't care about the EU as much. Not necessarily even that they're against the EU, although I think those views are legitimate as well. Um, I just don't want it to be completely intertwined. I want people to feel like they can have different positions on this if they want to. They don't have to feel the same way on the EU as they do about independence in order to support the independence movement. Uh, And so while I think, you know, it's great if people like Kezia are moved to change their constitutional position because of the fact that Scotland is more open to the EU than England and Wales. um, Yeah, I I wouldn't want these things to become completely intertwined. That's reasonable.
0: Just remembered something I was going to say when you were mentioning about, you know, possibly like a hung parliament in Westminster. The the, the, the kind of Keir Starmer type of, you know, cowardly centrist politician, I think, is the type that they almost yearn for a kind of political martyrdom. And I th- honestly think that given the choice of, you know, a a deal with the SNP, we're conceding a referendum, in order to. Form a government. I think he would choose to like fall on his own sword, and would be dreaming of sort of chapters in history books about how he gave up power for the for his love of the United Kingdom, and in a way, I, I kind of think the most likely, and this is certainly not a preference, but I think you'd be likely to get it a, a kind of Boris Johnson completely, you know, slimy you know, chancellors that it would just is just desperate for to do anything to get into power that would quite happily, you know, let Scotland go if the only way they can become Prime Minister is to be Prime Minister of England. Um and it's it's just really it's difficult to see a kind of path that way because, you know, Labour and the Tories are so wedded to, you know, unionism at a UK level. Although the way that with a slight sort of crack in that armor with Jeremy Corbyn recently saying that there should be an independence referendum, but even somebody like him, who was a real outlier outlier in terms of you know UK political leaders, even he didn't, I think, go that far while he was actually in the job of Labour leader. Uh, so I think even somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, when we can rely on him to do that, I'm not sure what hope we've, we've really got. Um, yeah, I,
1: mean, I, I think, think... I'm being awful negative, here. No, but I I think they've always been very clear that they would not do deals with SNP. And again, you know, they are appealing to certain um, geographical demogra- demographics, whatever, you know, it's, this is about England. Uh, and I think they're also ha- haunted by that poster that the Labourer from years ago of uh, it was Alex Salmond with Nicholas Sturgeon. No, 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 no. no. Ed, Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband in his pocket, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think as soon as you anything. mentioned it,
0: I knew the one you were thinking of there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So I just can't see it happening. I can't couldn't see anybody giving them monkeys about deals with the SNP. I just don't think they see that happening ever, to be honest. But
0: it would certainly be interesting to see, but I wouldn't be too hopeful if mm-hmm. like there was some you know, the mathematics left the SNP with that sort of kingmaker role. But um, I would be interested to see see what would happen.
2: See, the thing is, like, in popular opinion in England is not dead set against Scottish independence. I think the Labour Party almost convinced themselves that, you know, if they were to give in, as you say, well, because they're haunted by that poster, if they were to give in to demand of the SNP, there would be this big backlash, this big kind of British nationalist backlash. But I don't think people in England would really care that much if they were like, okay, Scotland gets a referendum. I mean, there's there's people in England who would like to see Scotland leave. Um, that always comes up when you do polls about this. And then there's people who really couldn't care. Um, certainly, you know, I've I lived in England uh, for a year recently when I spoke to people largely they didn't, especially young people, they were kind of indifferent about it. They kind of felt like this isn't mm-hmm. actually for them to decide. And I suspect that's a lot more widespread than we think. So I think in the event that the Labour Party finds itself pushed by parliamentary arithmetic to agree to a referendum on independence in Scotland um, in order to have the UK government, I think the vast majority of people south of the border will shrug their shoulders and say, oh, okay, fine.
0: Yeah, I think the opinion in England and in Scottish independence goes from, you go far enough in the left and you have people saying, you know, for democratic reasons, of course, they should have the right to vote on in independence. You'll go through to the middle to people that you know, like you say, just kind of shrug and couldn't care either way. And then you'll go to the far, go towards the right, and you'll get folk with the attitude of, "I just get rid of them." You know, mm-hmm. they're a, they're nothing but a sort of ungrateful, subtly, um sponger. You know, so like the very people they're hoping to um, locate Sometimes I think are the the sort of right wing populists that they're quite happy to support Scottish independence because they hate us. Um, I think it's a very small sort of imperialist, like um, right winger that is still like hell bent on controlling all of this island, and I think that's quite a quite a, a minor sort of uh, demographic.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of this all feeds into, I suppose, my kind of mantra really, which is that most people are decent um, if you ask them questions in a, a fair way you'll find they're not actually transphobic or whatever they don't really care that much about Scotland people should have what they want but I suppose it's just kind of like the, the mass you know the mass in the middle they don't get the say they get fed most people are too busy whatever in their their lives to read between lines and you know to really really think about things so I suppose what I'm saying is I guess you know so many of us are manipulated by people at the, the fringes and at the moment it tends to be the the far the right wing, the press or whatever and politicians so that's um, uh, what we're up against
0: I think uh, we'll move on to our final topic because I notice the time's getting away from us a wee bit and I finally managed to get a nice wee light hearted, everybody keeps telling me, try and finish in a nice more light hearted story and then a somehow take it in a kind of dark, depressing direction and we finish the podcast feeling all <laughs> down and downbeat. Um, so an area of Scotland has been given a new nickname after a bumper year of twins started primary school. Inverclyde has been called Twinverclyde after 17 sets of twins all joined the primary one. And it's not the first time the area has gone twin There have been 147 twin sets since 2013, an average of 13 per year. And in 2015, there were 19 sets of twins starting school. So I saw this story. And when I actually looked into it, I obviously saw the kind of, you know, the BBC and stuff. But this story was like in the New York Times, the um, Hindustan Times in India. And I kept reading them all, hoping at some point they'd say, oh, and this is why there are so many twins in Edward Clyde. And none of them did. So I don't know if any of the has any idea. I don't suppose you have any idea why Inverclyde has so many twins?
1: Not only that, but I don't really have much to add to that, to be honest. <laughs> I, just, I don't know what to say to that. It's not often I don't have an opinion and things about that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> a,
2: couple, a couple of my best friends uh, are identical twins. If you're listening, Carl and Fergus, this is me mentioned you. I, I, they they they've always get really annoyed because obviously they've been pestered and... Uh, Made fun of for being twins all their lives, and so they're very fierce opponents of what they call twinism. Um, so obviously, I always bam them up by trying to say the most ridiculously anti twin things that come into my head. Um, but yeah, it was interesting because I was, I was, I sent it on to them when I saw it in the news, and I was asking, like, this twin thing's getting out of hand now, clearly. And uh, they said they had seven sets of twins in their year at school in Inverness. I guess that could be called Twinverness as well. Maybe it's just places. That... Do... Yeah, it's just like a nominative determinism thing. If your place name starts with IN, you're more inclined to have twins. I wondered if maybe someone has to ring the alarm here. Well, not ring the alarm, but there's surely out there some sort of like medical researchers that specialize in twins and triplets, and maybe nobody's told them about Twinver Clyde yet. So maybe this could be ungagged, David could. Uh... Send some emails out to the top twin experts in medical science and ask them if they would come and send a delegation, a fact finding delegation, could be sent out, to Denver Clyde to figure out what's going on.
0: When you when you said ring the alarm bell, I thought, oh god, he's got to take it on a depressing route right here. That's my job. <laughs> No, you never yeah,
2: know. There, there was... could be, you know, there could be some unique DNA marker that is like entirely localized to Inverclyde that that's going to turn out. It totally makes you your likelihood of having twins or triplets shoot up. Yeah. It's an
1: odd, an odd one, because I, when I was at school a good long time ago, there was two sets of twins in my year. One of them, sadly, was dis- were disappeared um, after scribbling on their daughters. Goodness knows where they went off to. Um, and the other pair of twins um, terrorised me one after the other until, until primary six and or primary seven when i was able to get away from them so yeah me and twins don't have a <laughs> <laughs> uh, lot to say about them
2: well, i was getting into twinness territory there i think yeah, there's twins yeah. in my
0: in, twins in my family um I, there was i'm surprised like people saying how many twins are at school because i don't think there was any twins at my school that i can remember um, I did in my primary school class have two sisters that were in the same class but they were born 10 months apart um, which I, th- I think I've, I've since heard been called Irish twins but I, I'm not sure if that's a politically correct um, phrase to use <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it was like one of them was like one of the oldest ones in the year, another one was one of the youngest and it never struck me as how unusual that was until years later looking back in it and my uncle or my, my aunt's husband, he was a twin and his name was Mick, and his twin brother was Pat, and I always found it quite funny that somebody had twins and called them Pat and Mick, you know, it's at <laughs> like the beginning, the intro to a joke, I think on I that think note, imagine, I, I don't think we'll get much more to say about twins, but it was nice, that, it was nice pictures, and it's nice that Scotland's famous for something other than you know, drinking too much. Don't, don't say other. anything depressing oh, oh. now, David. So, don't, you, some some other it. terrible stereotype.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's it. Quite well we're Yeah.
0: <laughs> and on that note, um, thanks everybody for listening. Connor, Val, thanks for joining me. Um, you can find all our podcasts at leftungag.org as well as written articles, as Val said, she's written one recently. And you can sign up for our free newsletter. Um, you can also catch the Talking Sense podcast with Kat and Erin. And if there's anything you want us to talk about in Hollywood, you can talk, uh, tweet us at underscore ungagged, hashtag Hollywood ungagged, or email us at under, under ungagged left at gmail.com and put Hollywood ungagged in the subject line. I was about to uh, plug our Discord community, but we're actually just in the process of transferring to a signal group. So if you would interested in joining that, please get in touch through any of our social media channels. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars in whatever podcast platform you use. So until then, have fun, be good, and be lucky. Bye-bye.